Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. If you're a researcher working on something like stem cell uh, biology, uh, genetic engineering, you need to be aware of Frankenstein because Frankenstein is out there and it is a frame that people will put on this work. It's a it's a prefix now. Franken can be applied to anything as a way to, to put this particular light on it. So there's a lot of interest in it. And I think a lot of researchers are quite fascinated by the character of Victor Frankenstein as a, as a flawed creator. So people who've actually read the novel the Victor Frankenstein of the book is much more nuanced and complicated than the Victor Frankenstein of the Universal Pictures, for example, or the kind of trope of the mad scientist that we see in a lot of popular fiction or popular culture. The Victor of the novel is very conflicted. He makes a series of terrible choices, but he's not hes not a shallow character. Uh, well, he, he, you might think that he's shallow, but he's, he's complicated, and he has a lot of things to say for himself, just as the creature does. And so the... The story that we get today is one that scientists have a lot of hooks into because they can reflect on the the set of choices that Victor made leading up to his big breakthrough and then the choices that he makes afterwards. And the novel really pivots on that first moment after the preacher comes to life and Victor realizes that suddenly he, he realizes he didn't actually want to do this. There is no ship for you. There is no road. As you have wasted your life here, in this small corner, you've destroyed it everywhere else in the world. The haunting words of Greek poet, journalist and civil servant Constantin P. Kadafis from his iconic poem The City, which opens British novelist Lawrence Osborne's latest thriller, Beautiful Animals. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Do all parents love their children? And in life, do we make our own luck and misfortune? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with two talented and perceptive novelists. One writing for today and the other just over 200 years ago. Writers of tremendous insight, depth and beauty. British novelist Lawrence Osborne talks me through his new psychological thriller, Beautiful Animals, an unsentimental holiday noir set on the Greek island of Hydra. And Ed Finn from the Centre of Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University unpacks the myth of Frankenstein as spelled out in his latest publication, Frankenstein, annotated for scientists, engineers and creators of all kinds, published by the MIT Press. But first... Naomi was one of those people who exert an entirely unconscious influence on others and who cannot be held responsible to the effects. It was tropism, not conspiracy. This, of course, made her more dangerous. His earnest and upright mind was, moreover, ruffled by her ease of movement and her offhand manners. They seemed to him proof of a superiority which he would have to belittle in order to survive. The compelling words of British novelist Lawrence Osborne from his engrossing and gritty new novel, Beautiful Animals, published by Hogarth. My name is Lawrence Osborne. I'm a British writer living in Bangkok at the moment. I'm the author of The Forgiven and Hunters in the Dark 
And my most recent book is Beautiful Animals, which was published this summer. What an interesting read, Lawrence, Beautiful Animals. I have to say the uh, story raises so many interesting ideas and questions. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, on that note, I might throw you a big wide open question and sure we can play it by ear. Do you believe in the idea of unconditional love, the love between parents and children and, and siblings, let's say? Do you think that such a thing exists? Do you think that, you know, it's a given? I'm not sure if I believe in the idea of it, but I think the practice of it does come upon you, um, particularly with children. I have a son who's grown up son. Um, and I think with children and with your parents and with your siblings, yes, I think perhaps um, the conditions which normally accompany love are left to one side. Tell me, Lawrence, what prompted the novel? I know you travelled to Greece and did a few reports in there um, a couple of years ago. So so was it um, the refugee crisis or were there other things at play there? And what made you tell this particular story? No, I didn't set out with a kind of um, uh, a sort of political schema to kind of write about a topical thing, because I think that's nonsense. I don't think that really works. And um, it annoys me when reviewers start their reviews out by sort of surveying, you know, the problem uh, of refugee crisis as if that's the sort of key to the novel. I don't think novels work like that. Uh, I um, went to two things. I mean, I had been living in, in Istanbul and I was, uh, while living in Istanbul, I was asked by the uh, New York Times to go to Hydra and report on Dakis, who is this Greek art billionaire who has this Jeff Koons yacht that comes into Hydra every July and they have this big festival in the hills and these famous Matthew Barney goes there, all these famous New York artists go there. And it's all a bit absurd, you know. So the the absurd, I went I went along for the ride and I met Darkis and hung out with him. He was actually very nice, actually, um, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 it was a deliciously incongruous thing because you had these you know, you had these sort of, you had these international glitterati kind of art world people, and then you had this island, which seemed to have nothing to do with them. And then the, the Syrian refugee crisis, the Aegean refugee crisis was, was, was exploding all around them, although not on Hydra specifically, but certainly in Greece. And then I think there was also the Greek crisis, which I was also uh, interested to explore, um, you know, tangentially. I mean, not to get it, not to do it too full on. But uh, I spent a lot of time in Greece when I was a kid, so the country is very close to my heart. It was actually the first country I ever spent time in, other than the UK, when I was very small. So it was a country that means a lot to me emotionally. And to see it decline in the way it has, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the face of this horrible, completely needless crisis, uh, is something that's made me very angry. So I think it was the Greek crisis that attracted me first. And, you know, when you're in Hydra, you see all this wealth and all this kind of offhand, kind of uh, oblivious, you know, hedonism. And then you just take a boat to Ermione and you go you, you go to the, which is a little port across from Hydra, which is also quite well healed. But you can see that all the, there's nothing in the stores. The food stores are all empty. It's a kind of shocking thing to see. And I think that was that was my um, that was my initial my initial spark. Lawrence, Naomi and Sam, your two key characters, um, both have a, a, a darkness to them, but yet they're also very, very different. We might start with Naomi. Um, you describe her as a broken teenager and her backstory is that her mother died when she was very young and she felt very displaced in the world. She doesn't seem to have anyway a strong uh, moral compass and um, her engagement in the world is a little aloof, to put it mildly. Um, she almost lives opportunistically day to day. Um, you must have had a lot of fun writing her character, did you? 
I had a lot of fun writing her character. Um, although, you know, it was very hard to write two young women. Yeah. Uh, because, but hitherto, my protagonists have been male for safety reasons, because it's just closer, it's closer to myself, and therefore I know uh, whereof I speak, psychologically speaking. But I, I was kind of bored of that, and I, and, I, and I did want to do something about and I had this idea of these two women, uh, carried, both based on people I know uh, who shall remain nameless, uh, uh, thankfully. But, you know, I was just sort of um, uh, fascinated at this sort of chemistry that goes on between um, two people in their 20s uh, in the present moment. And because it's not my generation, I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s, I mean, it's a completely different place to where they are now. And it just sort of, um, of course, I wanted her not to be just uh, fecklessly opportunistic. I mean, she also has a, a fair amount of guilt and a fair amount of shame and a fair amount of, and her desire to help the refugee and all that, of course, is, uh, is fraudulent on some level, but it's also not entirely fraudulent. Otherwise, it wouldn't be interesting. I don't think people are necessarily aware of their own fraudulence. I'm certainly not aware of mine all the time. Uh, it's just the human condition that you, you know, that we're sort of part authentic and part inauthentic, all of us. And we all have that, we all vacillate between those two things. Um, of course, as a writer, you can sort of observe it in somebody else, but I, I recognize it in myself as well. The way we, we need causes to make up, the way we virtue signal, the way we need to authenticate ourselves um, by holding these positions that aren't really the way, about the way we live. Uh, the way we live is usually very selfish. But we're all proving points to ourselves and our loved ones, Lawrence, aren't we? We are indeed. And that is, uh, there is a kind of terrible uh, small tragedy in that. Yeah. But see, I, I, I thought, okay, so I could start with that. But then what happens when you have a little plan and the plan goes wrong? And therefore, you're thrust into deeper waters than you had intended to enter in the first place. And there, that's where, you know, just, I mean, just in terms of, of, of story or telling a story. Um, because for me, plots and stories are not just things that embellish novels. They have to have moral logic. They have to have mm. resonance. They have to. This is why I think thinking through the story is very, uh, to me, is a very powerful thing. It's more important than anything else. Now, the story has to sort of um, has to sort of have its own uh, gravity gravitas. Naomi pitches up a very interesting question halfway through the novel. She says, "If your past is shit, what do you go forward to?" I'm just wondering, how do you feel about it all? What's your own view? Well, okay, so your past. Is sh- what she's talking about is a life which is sort of bourgeois and empty and kind of pointless and, and, and actually consisting in precisely this kind of vacuous and vapid virtue signaling, which is the curse of her generation in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a virtue signaling generation, um, which feels uneasy deep down because they're very intelligent. They know that that's not, you know, they know that it's that life is elsewhere uh, in the famous phrase. So your life can be shit because it's too rich and too comfortable. And this is a common affliction among the, the affluent and among the people who have grown up in very privileged. Uh, and this is why privilege is a very interesting subject in a way. Not because you want to necessarily deconstruct it or moralize against it, which is, I think, sort of fatuous in, in turn, but because it produces a certain kind of human dilemma, which is which is how to make your life worth something. I mean, how to give it some substance, how to give it vertical depth. Every human being tries to give his or her life vertical depth and um, usually fails, you know, but the, the attempt to do it is very beautiful. And will in that, Lawrence, we're all looking for a degree of freedom. Whether it exists, I don't know. Well, freedom is having that uh, substance, I think. Yeah. Uh, 
D.H. Lawrence once said that people are only free when they exist in living relationship to a deeply held tradition. I think that's very true. The other kind of freedom, being free of those things, being free of that substance, is of course uh, a mouthful of ashes. It's nothing. Sam, your other character, um, Lawrence, she's very perceptive, she's very astute and um, she's very aware of her own vulnerabilities, which makes for a very interesting read. Um, Whether she wants to take um, action on that, I don't know. But um, I'm just wondering, why did you want to write uh, a character like Sam? What, you know, where, where did you get the idea for her from? Was it anyone particular in your life? Well, Sam, in some ways, is a sort of riff on the eternal innocent, and also the the eternal, in the Jamesian sense, I mean, the, you know, the eternal American innocence. And, you know, the American, I mean, I, you know, I lived in America, in the United States for a very long time. I lived there for 22 years. I, mean, I lived in New York for 22 years. So Sam is a kind of character uh, with which I am intimately familiar. I mean, I know, I've had girlfriends like that. I know, I, I, it's just I know the milieu that she comes from. I know that New York world, that sort of journalistic intellectual world. And I lived inside it for decades, you know. And I know that it produces that kind of uh, person. But there's also a question of her age. I mean, in the sense that she, you know, the character that she will be when she's 41 is not the character that she is at 21. So at 21 is a very perilous time, and you're coming out of the, you're coming out of the chrysalis. You're coming. You're just beginning to emerge. And it's this very sort of fearful uh, time, actually, particularly now that a lot of the cushy jobs have disappeared and a lot of the, you know, the, the, the whole thing has become much weirder and more insecure. Um, so I wanted a character that kind of, you know, reflected all of that. Yeah. And in a way, I sort of, she also has a certain amount of privilege, but nothing like Naomi. Um, but she, I also wanted her to have curiosity about other forms of life and um, you know New York is actually very parochial very inward looking very provincial in many ways it's a very parochial city it's a very parochial culture um, it's not as sophisticated as, as it thinks it is it has pockets of sophistication but it's not it still it still has a quality of naivety to me um, so her qualities of naivety and curiosity seem true to me Lawrence, I loved uh, your character, um, Jimmy, Naomi's father. He's a, he's a very messy sort of a fellow, very slippery, uh, very opportunistic and greedy. And he's a real, um, he's a real hunger for life. He, he's just quite comical and very rawly himself. Um, he doesn't lie. He doesn't pretend to be something that he's not. Uh, sure he doesn't. In a way, he's a typical Brit, you know, I mean, there's always a bit of a, there's a certain kind of Brit that has that kind of con man. Yeah. <laughs> We're a con man people in many ways. Uh, we have that slippery, you know, trust me, I, I live in Bangkok, I'm surrounded by them, you know. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, you know, um, he's a character, the type, that type I'm also very, very familiar with growing up with. Um, you know, they have their, so again, you know, they have their sort of honorable, um, stiff, upper, stiff upper lip side, which is, and then they have this sort of strange anxiety, um, ill at ease in their own skin. Um, it's very curious that psychologically is something I haven't gotten to the bottom of yet in my own, um, in my own people, in my own, uh, in my own culture. Yeah. But I wanted it also to be a, to be slightly, slightly comical and hyperbolic. Yeah. yeah, and he's a range of fixers all over the world which seem to be doing him lots of different interesting types of favours. He lives such a lavish lifestyle. He's always drinking, eating out in fancy restaurants and he seems to be always being served. Yeah, and I think these are, again, it's based on somebody I know. Uh, Hydra is full of people like that. Yeah. Um, well, I shouldn't say full, that's a slight exaggeration. There are, But, the, you know, it attracts 
there are certain places in the world that attract those kind of guys, you know, who have made their money in uh, whatever they may be doing. You know, you can go to Phuket in Thailand, it's like full of those guys. And they made millions doing um, industrial stuff or running, and in his, his case, running a small airline. But, you know, uh, it can be even weirder, things even weirder than that. So they've made their money, they've made their millions, and they still have a sort of proprietary colonial attitude towards the rest of the world, which is not entirely conscious. But they feel, um, what's interesting about them is they feel quite comfortable about living anywhere in the world. So you can go to the Costa Brava, you can go to Thailand, you can go to, God, the Philippines, you can go to California. It's full of those kind of Brits. Jimmy said something very interesting and, and, and very honest and very um, admirably honest, actually, when discussing the migrant crisis with his daughter, Naomi. And um, it's very uncomfortable in one way, but it's, um, as I say, it's very, um, very, very honest. He says over dinner um, when he's discussing the migrant crisis that if we keep them out, it destroys them. If we let them in, it destroys us. And he asks Naomi, his daughter, to shoot the stomach for that. And it's a question, I suppose, that we all have to ask ourselves and how, what are our limits? How far can we go? What are, what are we comfortable with? What is our duty? And I suppose, um, you know, what's the right thing to do? And it's not clear cut. Sure, it's not. Yeah. I mean, those of us who are liberals, you know, so on. Uh, it's a question that liberals, liberalism has to ask itself and which it's afraid to ask itself. Mm. I mean, in a way, it's the question that the Romans asked on the Danube 2000 years ago. When they were confronted by the Germans, it was like, let them in, uh, keep them out, let them in, keep them out. And it was this sort of, for two or three hundred years, the Romans played with this particular kind of fire. And in the end, it consumed them because they couldn't control it. They couldn't actually, uh, in the end, they, you know, the end of the fourth century, they let them in. And, um, you know, it didn't turn out too well for them. I'm not saying that we are Rome and migrants, you know, blah, blah, blah. Of course, it's very different. It's a different, it's a different situation. But there are still aspects of it which are uncomfortable and which have not been thought through. And we can see this, for example, in the change of uh, policy or the change of attitude of Merkel and the Germans. They've, they've, they're aghast. They don't know what to do. They've, they, they realize they've taken on something that they weren't prepared to, they weren't prepared to take, they weren't ready to take on. Yeah. And I think yeah. they, have, they, have, they are acknowledging that. I mean, it's not just me saying it. I think they are acknowledging it. We're talking about not just refugee flows, because historically refugee flows are relatively small. Um, now we're talking about migrations of entire peoples in millions of people. It's a completely different uh, order of problem for which we don't have a vocabulary yet. It's just calling it the refugee crisis. It's just completely banal. It doesn't. What does that mean? But Lawrence, it's a story or narrative through history that seems to constantly come back and bite us. So I'm just wondering, why do you think it is that we haven't dealt with such issues like this? Why do you think we all have so much problems with dealing with the other and reaching out to the other? Like, how do you explain all that? Because it doesn't see. It's not going away. It's a question of numbers. That's all. It's a question of numbers. What's the number that you would accept? No one can tell you. If you ask that question, nobody, nobody has any answer. What you're seeing in Italy now and in Sicily, the migrant crisis didn't begin with Syria. It began with Libya. And I was in Italy when that was happening. Um, and the Italian Navy was saying to the Italian government, look, we just, the whole country is destabilized. We have these two ports, Benghazi, Sirte, that are run by ISIS. And we don't know what the human trafficking is going on. We don't understand it. But we've also, by v- virtue of destabilizing Libya, we've also destabilized much of the Sahara, the Sahara behind it. So you're talking maybe millions and millions of people funneling through Libya in a way that is completely uncontrollable. It's uncontrolled. So the question is numbers. Um, how many how many 
people from sub-Saharan Africa are Italians going to admit? It's an impossible question for them to answer. Um, they'd rather just not talk about it. But, you know, uh, you're talking about profound demographic changes, uh, which are happening at the speed of light, and which I don't think have many historical precedents. Migrations have always existed. But migrations in the past have been a mixture of violent and peaceful. Um, and their consequences are completely unforeseen. They're completely unintended. And then that's my, in a way, my agnostic view. I think in terms of Syria, we should have just um, set up a regime where, where we just allow them in because they're coming from the worst civil war in our lifetimes. And there shouldn't have been any discussion about that. About that, you're correct. You know. But, what, but, but now, but now what, you, what you're seeing in the refugee centers in, in Sweden and so on, they're not Syrians. Uh, they're taking in interpreters who speak Arabic, and nobody speaks Arabic. So you, you're talking about people coming from Uzbekistan, from Pakistan, from Burma. I mean, I don't know. It's, just a, it's, it's morphed into a different thing. I'm just wondering, Lawrence, when you were writing um, the character of Fahoud, um, I'm just wondering, how did you go about the research for that? Because you uh, present him as a very charming, elusive, uh, charismatic sort of a guy. He's very savvy. He's very sharp. He's also uh, uh, very um, competent at playing people uh, psychologically and playing people off each other. And he's open with himself and very uh, willing to be manipulated and manipulate others in order to survive. And, you know, I'm sure some people would have um, massive reservations on how you've, how you've presented this particular migrant story and his moral compass. So I'm just wondering, can you talk me through that? Well, he's um, Faoud. The character of Faoud, in a way, was the beginning of the novel, which when you asked that question earlier, I gave you the you know, reply about Hydra and Greece. But there was also the Istanbul side. And of course, I lived in Istanbul for years and, you know, I met many people like Faoud. Uh, in particular, um, I was very friendly um, with a French guy who ran a, a Kanun music school in Istanbul who had migrated from Aleppo after the music school was destroyed by the regime in Syria. And um, he migrated to Istanbul with all his students and his students who were these sort of upper middle class, very educated, very cultivated and uh, very interesting young guys in their 20s who simply followed him to Istanbul because there was no point staying in Syria and pursuing a career as a classical musician. And uh, they used to have these wonderful um, musical soirees just by the glass tower in Istanbul on uh, bi weekly basis. And I would nearly always, because various mutual friends I had would always go to these, they were known as the best musical evenings in Istanbul. And I would go there and these guys would play this sort of Sufic music for, for hours and hours, until dawn really actually sometimes. They go into these trances. Um, it was fantastic. And these were the music students from Aleppo. And Faoud is one of those. Um, and all these things about their life in Istanbul, the little cafes in Ortakoy where they'd all gather and share cigarettes and cups of coffee because they couldn't afford it, and the tutoring jobs they had to the sort of wealthy Istanbuli fa- families who would treat them like shit. And I mean, after all, after all, we, we talk about um, refugees and migrants into our cultures, but hey, Turkey has exactly the same issue. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the Syrians have poured into Turkey and uh, are not given work, work permits, are not given freedom, to move, freedom of movement, and are treated like dogs. So there's also, which I also saw firsthand, although it's also true that you know, many Turks have treated them again after as well. It's a, mix, it's a mixed bag, it's a mixed story. But Istanbul, at the time that I was there in 2011, 2012, the end of my time there was beginning to fill with these, the, Syrian, um, the Syrian influx. And the tensions with the Turks were beginning to rise. And we've seen where they've gone now, you know, and the way Turkey has been 
that's contributed to the changes that Turkey's undergone. But yeah, that's where food comes from. But his character, Lawrence, brings up so many interesting questions. And one of them is on look and also what we're, what we're all willing to do in order to survive. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to survive and wanting a better life. Sure, there's not. Like, what's wrong with that? I didn't think of him as, I didn't think of him as bad at all. Um, I mean, actually, in a way, I suppose Foad is the character I put the most of myself in. Yeah, right. Instead of making him into some symbolic refugee, you know, blah, 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 I didn't want to do that at all. I wanted him to be completely ordinary. I really like myself. I, I, in a way, I imagined what I, what I would be like if I was forced to go live in Syria as a refugee or whatever. I mean, you, what would you do? How would you react? How would you, how would you, um, what would you do with these these girls who, you know, who want to help you, sleep with you, give you money, whatever, set you up. How would you, how would you, how cynically would you take it, accept it? I mean, were I Faoud, I would do, would have done exactly the same thing. I think that's how I answered the question for myself. And that's how I was, how I was able to write that character, whether it works or not, I don't know, but that's how I, that's how he did it. And when he's on the run later in Italy, to me, it's just logic. It's just, um, there's an, there's a pitiless logic to the situation that he can't escape any more than any, anybody else would yeah. be able to.